I've so been looking forward to this particular message as Esther is probably one of my most favorite characters in the entire Bible, a woman who truly stood in a critical moment and her courageous decision and her brilliant mind uh, saved her entire nation. So it's going to be incredible to listen to her today. And I'm sure you're going to be excited about the last few installments that we have in this series. We're going to talk about Noah, and I'm so excited to be able to clear the air. That movie that came out was nothing, had nothing to do with the Bible at all. And I'm excited to be able to tell the real story of a courageous man who just obeyed God when he did not understand at all what God was saying. It had never rained before, and here's a man that built a boat to protect his family, but a man of great faith and courage. So I can't wait to share this, and I was going to end with Daniel, but we're going to give Daniel his entire series because of the days in which we live. There's no greater example than Daniel, a man of character, who when there was already, uh, when the culture tried to change him, change his name, his identity, what kind of food he could eat, change his worship of his God, basically said, you can't worship this way anymore, you will become like us. Well, that's the culture we live in today, a culture with already too many shades of gray, trying to squeeze everyone into its mold. And we don't see that. We're so used to it, we don't realize the pressure that's trying to make us all conform and silence our mouths and change the way we think and make our behavior adapt to the rule of the norm instead of just being who God called us to be. So we're going to look at Daniel, and Daniel also has a vision of the future, and his vision is so profound that when you hear it, you'll say, he saw the days we're living in right now. So back in Easter, when I asked you to tell me, what do you want me to talk about? You said, please tell us about what scripture has to say about prophecy, about the times in which we live and the days of the end. And so we're going to use Daniel as a backdrop and a, and a template for a six-week series beginning in September. So I'm inviting you to think about people that you need to bring, like people who are disconnected from church or they're discouraged or maybe don't have a church home, but someone specific. This is not just a random assignment. I want you to think of a face, a family, three or four people that you can just write down their names, put them on, on your refrigerator and just think about them and ask God to give you the opportunity uh, to invite them to come because this series is going to be life-changing. But today we come back to our series. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit whatever you do to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Commit whatever you do. Commit your character, the way you live today. Commit that to the Lord. Do the right things today and he will make you into a person who plans successfully. I can't think of a better example than Esther. And I'm so pleased to have uh, Dr. Ivan Satyavrata here with us today. And, you know, he would be embarrassed by all that stuff that they put on the screen. I mean, he's the most humble uh, servant of God, serving God in one of the, probably one of the most difficult assignments in the, one of the worst, uh, most impoverished cities of the world, a man just faithfully living out his faith. Please put your hands together and welcome our dear friend, Dr. Ivan Satyavrata. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you for those kind words, uh, Pastor Darren. And I do want to thank you and your beautiful wife, Lori. Uh, this is a great church. I thought somebody will say amen. You know, you don't realize it. Sometimes we're like, you know, when you get into, when you put your finger in the bathtub, the water seems hot. And when you get in, it don't, doesn't seem that hot. But when I just came in and... You know, the worship is powerful. Uh, what an anointed worship team. Uh, 
In fact, one of my problems is because I love to worship, I sing so loudly, by the time I come up to speak, my voice is a little hoarse. But you know what that is. And I also love to worship uh, in congregations like this, where you see every shade of color. You know what? This is the closest thing to heaven on earth. And uh, I wish I was living here, Pastor Darren. I'd love to attend this church. Um, I just want to take a moment or two to thank you for all you do. Pastor Darren, uh, your family, and uh, this church, for all you do for people like us in our part of the world, uh, for strengthening our hand through your prayers and support. I'm especially pleased to have with me uh, three-fourths of my family, my dear wife, Sheila, and Rohan. We have another older son. Rohan actually lives with us and works, uh, serves in the church. But we have an older son named Rahul who would have been here except that he's about his father's business in another part of the country. He serves the Lord in a close country in Southeast Asia, which is close to the gospel. In fact, it's the third most close country in the world after North Korea and Saudi Arabia. So if you're acquainted with the, that uh, classification, you know what the third country is. But please pray for us as a family, and we, we have so enjoyed the warmth of fellowship that we've experienced since arriving here. I also want to bring you greetings from the world's largest democracy, uh, India. <clears throat> 1.3 billion people, home to one-third of the world's unreached people groups, and to one-third of the world's extremely poor. I'm not going to go into detail here, but to, to try and help you understand uh, the context within which we serve. Two out of five Indians live on less than $1 a day. And if you raise that bar to $2 a day, four out of five Indians live on less than $2 per day. Which makes India, for all of these reasons, both the ultimate challenge to Christian mission, as well as the greatest opportunity. It's a 9,000-year-old civilization with the youngest population in the world. If you can imagine a population of 1.3 billion, of which 70% is below the age of 35. In fact, some sociologists predict that within the next 8 to 10 years, one-fourth, 25%, of the global workforce will be of Indian origin. And so I say that most places I go, if someone is looking for a title for a new Hollywood film, here's one. Look out, the Indians are coming. <laughs> and this time is the real Indians, not the ones Christ Columbus mistook for Indian. Uh, I know several of you here are Cry of India partners and I just want to also take a moment to thank our dear friends, David and Nancy Costin and Dawn and Janice Chesky, uh, uh, your pastor's parents and parents-in-law. They're dear, dear friends. We so appreciate what you do on behalf of India. And the Ministry of Cry of India impacts different parts of North India. 
And I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to describe our part of India uh, to give you a, just a first-hand abbreviated description of the work that those of you who acquire India partners are supporting. Our church in Calcutta, you had a brief glimpse of it. Uh, we have 15 services every weekend with over 4,000 people, and the services happen in eight different languages. And we also are attempting to reach the city, not just through centralized services, important as they are in our strategy, but we, God has given us a vision for planting care groups all across the city. The vision God has given us is to cover the city, to spread the net of God's care all across our city. The vision is to have a group of believers within walking distance of every person in our city. We have made a small beginning. We have close to 240 care groups now. Our next goal is 1,000. But our lifetime goal, if Jesus tarries, is uh, at least 50,000 care groups across our city. We feed, as you've seen, uh, over 10,000 people every day on the streets, in the streets and slums. We have 10 schools for the poor. We essentially provide uh, basic education, one hot midday meal for most of the children who come to our, those schools. That's the only meal they have in the day, uh, as well as essential health care. And for you Cry of India partners, that is where your support goes. And at this point of time, we, we have in our schools 2,500, 2,500 children that we take care of. We also have two ministries to two red light districts in our city, rescuing victims of sex trafficking. We have two homes for orphaned children. We also, uh, clean drinking water is a huge, huge need in most parts of uh, rural India. And we produce biosand filters that uh, promise a lifetime supply of clean, safe drinking water. We, we, we have that as one of our projects. We also have a Bible college that, that trains pioneer pastors for church planting across East and North India. And we continue to prov provide support and covering for a network of over 450 churches across North and East India. That's a brief synopsis. Uh, one of these days of the Lord enables you, we'd love to welcome you to Calcutta. Believe it or not, we do not have tigers walking around in our back garden or elephants on the street. It is relatively safe. And I promise you, uh, if you come, we will guarantee short of an act of God that you will be, return home safely. This morning, I believe God wants to speak to us from the life of a woman, woman in the Old Testament who single-handedly changed the destiny of a nation. Queen Esther. Her story begins with a royal Miss World Beauty Contest. Some of you didn't know the Bible describes things like that. Well, turn to the book of Esther. You'll see exactly that. And this story happens approximately four and a half centuries before Christ. And the location is one of the most powerful empires the world has ever seen. The Persian Empire. This is a powerful despot named Xerxes who ruled most of the then known world. And uh, his queen displeases him. He summons her at a drunk moment uh, in the midst of his guests, and she refuses to, <coughs> excuse me, she refuses to oblige the king 
And this was, of course, an affront to the king. He banishes her and begins the search for a new queen. That's the beauty contest. A Hebrew maiden named Esther is chosen and crowned. And overnight, this young peasant girl finds herself in the queen's palace. The most powerful woman in the world. Living in the lap of luxury. Enjoying choice food, best clothes. Servants to do her bidding. The fulfillment of the dream of any young person. Comfort. And happiness beyond her wildest dreams. And just as she's settling down to enjoy the ride, on one dark and terrible day, her beautiful world comes crashing down. When she receives the horrifying news that a very powerful member of the Persian government, a guy by the name of Haman, who hates the Jews, has schemed and succeeded in convincing the king to sign an edict. And this edict was an edict ordering all Jews in the Persian Empire to be exterminated, young and old, women and children, were all to be killed and annihilated on a single day. I'm reading to you three verses from the climax of the story from Esther chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And these are the words of Esther's foster father, who in the midst of this crisis sees the only glimmer of hope in Esther. And he sends her this message. If you, Esther, keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king, and if I must die, I must die. Esther is facing the challenge of her life as she's presented with this extraordinary test of courage. See, many young Ladies, approximately the age of Esther. Nothing could have prepared her for this moment. There was an authority figure in her life appealing for help, saying to her, my daughter, you are our only hope. You are the only one who can avert this huge catastrophe. You must go into the king's presence and beg for mercy on behalf of your people. And this timeless moment is captured in Mordecai's words. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Before we continue with the story, I want you to take that and apply it to your own life this morning. 
You may look at this or hear this story and say, you know what, that's Queen Esther. Me, I'm just called to live an ordinary life. No, sorry. No, ma'am. God has a unique plan for your life. Every human being on this planet and every person in this auditorium today, God has such a moment for you. You are the answer to someone's prayer. You just don't know it at this point. In fact, someone said, there are many, many, many unanswered prayers. You know, where do you find them? At the bottom of the cemetery. Many people who miss God's purpose because they stopped short of taking the step that they needed to take in order to become the answer to someone's prayer, the fulfillment of God's purpose. Esther, who knows if you were made queen for such a time as this? Who knows that you're in that place of influence for such a time as this? Who knows that God has given you those children for such a time as this? Who knows God has given you access to such, so many resources for such a time as this? Who knows? Esther is this model of courage that survives the test of fire. The founder of International Justice Mission, Gary Hogan, defines courage in these words. He says, courage is the power to do the right thing even when it's scary and hard. So what does it take to have courage that will endure the test of fire? Just want to give you three simple truths from the life of Esther this morning. First of all, courage flows from conviction. When Mordecai's message first came to Esther, her reaction was, oh no, Mordecai, you don't know what you are asking for. Her first reaction is the normal reaction of most of us, a cop-out. No, not me. You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what I'm capable of. But then Mordecai's challenge stirs her out of her complacency. She recognizes the sovereign hand of God upon her life. As she looks back, she sees that everything that has happened in her life has been orchestrated by God to bring her to this place. My life is an orphan. I thought it was a tragedy. Do you have a tragedy in your life that you look back and blame it for everything that comes your way today, for the kind of person you are, for the mediocrity that you've settled down to live with? Esther looks back and suddenly it all makes sense. My life is an orphan. My natural God-given beauty. Queen Vashiti's dethronement. The favor God gave me with the eunuch who prepared me so well for this beauty contest. And the king could have chosen anyone. But he chose me. I wondered why he chose me. Now I know. Mordecai is right. 
My people are facing certain destruction. But God has placed me here in the palace. I am Queen Esther, the wife of the most powerful person in the Persian Empire. Yes. Could it be God has brought me to this place for such a time as this? And then it hits her. The conviction begins to burn in her soul. Indeed, I was born for this moment. That's what enables us to, her to show such amazing courage in the face of danger. It came from her deep conviction that she was God's instrument for a bigger purpose. And my prayer for every human being on the planet, those of you who here are already Christ followers, but perhaps you don't know what this is all about. You've just come in this morning as a visitor. You're cur curious. I want you to know that you've come to exactly the right place. And if you're struggling, groping, looking for meaning, you're trying to make sense of life, well, this could be the transformative moment that you've been waiting for. Listen to what Paul says. This guy who was such a fierce opponent of the way of Christ, who had followers of Christ arrested, tortured, beaten, even put to death, when he comes face to face with his purpose on the Damascus Road, when he meets Christ, and his life turns around. Listen to his words in Philippians 3.12. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. If Christ has not yet taken hold of your life, just give him a chance. And if he has, I plead with you, don't settle for second best. Don't settle for mediocrity. If, 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 if you have a sense that God has created me for something more than this, don't just live with that uncertainty for the rest of your life. Yes, my dear brother, brother and sister, all of us have to come to that place at some time in our lives if we are going to be of any use to God, to recognize that God has chosen me. God has orchestrated every detail of my life. I am here on this planet. I am here in this place in my life for such a time as this. You know, such courage that Esther has doesn't come out of thin air. It comes from the presence of God. And so we see her undertaking this three-day fast with her maids, asking all the Jews in Susa to fast on her behalf as well. And we see her dependence on God creates in her a burning conviction. That's the source of her courage. You remember the book of Acts? When Peter and John are brought before this powerful council called the Sanhedrin, the political and religious authorities of that day, and they are charged not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they look at them in the face and say, should we be obedient to you or should we obey God? There's a footnote there. It says, when they saw them, they took note that they had been with Jesus. 
You see, friends, one of the signs of our intimacy with God is that we are bold and fearless when it comes to standing for the truth. I told this story last evening, and maybe I'll say it again. Uh, Peter Cartwright was a 19th century circuit riding Methodist preacher. Just before he was to preach to a large congregation, someone informed him that President Andrew Jackson was going to be in attendance. And the point was, they were trying to caution him. They said, we wanted you to know so that you won't say anything offensive to the president. Cartwright simply nodded his, nodded his head, said, thank you for telling me. And as soon as he got into the pulpit, this is what he said. I've been told that President Andrew Jackson is in the congregation and been asked to carefully guard what I'm going to say. I want to begin by saying that Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent of his sin. <laughs> That's not the way to be invited back to speak. You could have heard a pin drop, but here's the greatness of this president. After the service, he walked up to Peter Cartwright and said, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the whole world. Excuse me. How deep is your conviction that Jesus is the only hope for the world? Courage flows out of deep conviction. Secondly, courage is a choice. Esther's choice was not an easy one. Try to imagine the trauma of this peasant girl who suddenly had this meteoric rise into the palace. No experience of administration. She wasn't a soldier. She's never handled anything close to a crisis of this nature. All of a sudden, the lives of thousands of men, women, and children hang by a single thread. And the only th thing between that thread and the sword of the oppressor is her neck. Stakes were high. Kings in the ancient Near Eastern world were cruel and capricious. Laws were taken seriously, and make no mistake, Esther was uh, uh, contemplating breaking a law. Listen to the words that she, she sends to Mordecai. All the king's officials, even the people in the provinces, know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. The king has not called me for 30 days. Implied there is the possibility that he's displeased with her already. Esther's life was in real danger with deadly consequences for the Jewish people. She had to make a choice. And let me say, the choice was not between good and bad. It was not a choice whether to sin or not to sin. The choice was whether to do something or to do nothing. She didn't have to do one wrong thing. All she had to do was sit on her hands and the entire Hebrew nation would have been exterminated. Perhaps the choice you're facing doesn't seem as consequential. I'm not sure Esther understood the full implications of her choice. I'm not sure Esther realized 
that her, her act of courage would save the Jewish nation, and in saving the new Jewish nation, in fact, be responsible for allowing the Messiah to come into the world and for the world to be saved. You realize you and I wouldn't be sitting here today if Esther had not made that difficult choice, friends. But thirdly and finally, yes, courage flows out of conviction. Courage is a choice. But courage involves a cost. See, Esther could have reacted in many ways to Mordecai's challenge. She could have selfishly said, why me? This is not my battle. Why should I fight it? The king will protect me. Lord, let someone else fulfill your purpose. She could have pleaded helplessness. What can I do about it? How can I defy the king's rules? I didn't make them. How often do we say, you know, the need is so great, pastor. I'm not cut out for this kind of thing. And of course, the most common thing we respond to when we are faced with a need or challenge is a spiritual cop-out. I can't do anything, but I'll fast and pray. Wait for God's time. I am waiting for God's time. A pastor comes to us and gives us an opportunity, presents to us a challenge. Not yet. Not just now. Esther counted the cost. She says, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. If I perish, I perish. God's purpose meets her obedience, and she becomes God's instrument to deliver an entire nation from destruction. The crisis became an opportunity only because of her courage. When Jesus calls us to follow him, beloved, he invites us to count the cost. Esther counted the cost, was willing to pay the price, and became the channel for a miracle that saved an entire nation. And today you and I sit here because of her choice, because she was willing to pay the price. Just over 20 years ago, a former student and dear friend of mine, let's call him Dave for now, went into one of the most challenging mission fields in the world, the red light district of Mumbai, on the west coast of India. A hellhole of brutal exploitation. He met with threat and opposition at every corner. Frustrated but not daunted, he and his small team of co-workers continued to pray for a breakthrough. One day, Dave heard that the girls who died of AIDS in the red light district were being dumped into the streets. Obviously, because the people were terrified of that disease. They didn't understand it, and they were afraid of even touching the bodies of the girls who died of AIDS. But Dave saw in this a window of opportunity and took it. I want you to imagine the following scene as I describe it to you today. A young woman's corpse is being carried through the streets. Her face was covered, but those watching knew who it was. It was Rita, who lived at door number 28 down the street. 
She had been ill for a while, a terrible disease, more deadly than cancer and more contagious than leprosy. The last few days of her life had been horribly painful, made worse by her fear and deep loneliness. No one knows exactly when she died. But this morning, a girl who poked her head into her room saw the flies all over her, caught the stench, and informed the man madam who owned the brother. The madam forced four terrified girls to drag Rita's body out by the corners of a bedsheet and toss it into the street near the garbage dump. Sometime later, a group of outsiders came with a stretcher, some sheets and flowers. They sang and prayed softly as they wrapped the sheets around Rita's body, gently, lovingly, as though she was one of their own. Rita's friends watched silently from a distance, and then one of them spoke up. I have heard about these people. They've done this before. You know, they spend their own money and give girls like us a decent burial. It was not long before one of the girls ran behind the servants of Jesus and asked the question, why do you do this? And then they spoke. And they said, we do this because we serve a God of love who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's done that for us. He died for us and he died for you. And he wants to give you a life that's whole, that's full and meaningful. Wasn't long before cracks developed in the impregnable wall of the red light district. Today, on the outskirts of Bombay, there's a 40-acre home of hope where over 300 girls who have been rescued from the red light area and children rescued from the red light area have found wholeness, healing, and a full and meaningful life. There's a church today at the edge of the red light district. Every Saturday evening, over 400 people from the red light district worship there. Only this last year, two and a half thousand women in the red light area were reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, yes, it's a good time to clap. Dave is one of my heroes. I have, the, have had the privilege of serving as chair of his board for over 20 years now. But leaders like Dave are ordinary people who have connected to an extraordinary God who has filled them with a courage that enables them to carve out opportunities in the face of impossible obstacles. Courage is a matter of conviction, choice, and cost. 
Let me hasten to add, courage that comes from faith is not the absence of fear, friends. It is overcoming fear with the strength God gives us by His Holy Spirit. And as I bring this message to a close this morning, I want to ask you a very simple question. What is God calling you to today? I can't answer that question for you. But even as we bow our heads in a moment from now, I want you to listen to the voice of Esther down through the centuries. As she realized here was this cause that was bigger than her. A cause risking her life for. A cause that brought deliverance and redemption to the world. There is a cause for which you are the answer. It may not be as big as Esther's cause, but it's a cause that God is counting on you to give your life to. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Jesus, you said, whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. This morning I want to leave you with this simple challenge. You can choose to save your life. You can choose to play it safe and stay in your comfort zone for the rest of your life. Or you can decide to lose your life for the sake of the gospel. You can choose to dare to be different. You can choose to follow Jesus, whatever the cost, whatever the consequences. With no one looking around, if you're saying this morning, Ivan, I'm willing to say yes. I want you to quickly slip your hand and put it down as I pray. Just before I pray, just quickly put it, your hand up and put it down. No one is looking, no one is watching. Yes, yes, I see those hands. Yes. Father, this morning we thank you for the life of Esther. Thank you for igniting the fire of conviction in our heart and giving her the courage to choose to dare to walk into the king's presence, dare to enter through that door of opportunity, even though it meant risking her life. I pray for all my brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord. I don't know what situation they're facing, what challenge that has the potential to become an opportunity. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of power, that gives us boldness and courage. Come Holy Spirit this morning. And for those who are crying out to you this morning for strength and courage. Fill our hearts. Energize us with your presence. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.